Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. Each week, you'll hear world-leading scientists and experts talking about the most fascinating ideas in science and technology today. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to food scientist, doctor and TV presenter Stuart Faramond to find out how I can use science to upgrade my cooking. So first of all, to be a really good cook, what equipment do I really need? Hey, Sarah. Um, yeah, great question. Um, so the right equipment, and this is really hard, and I tell you what, probably the most important thing is your knife. And, you know, you will ask a, a chef, a chef will carry around his knives because the knives are really important because obviously you need to chop things, but a knife is more than that. You know, I would say the most important thing is a chef's knife, which is one of those ones that's a sort of a, a V-shaped thing, a V-shaped knife. And the good thing about that is that it's got a very large uh, edge. And so you can actually use it for lots of things. You can crush garlic with the side of it. And and because it's got, if it's got a curved edge, then you can do, you can do like a rocking movement, which is great for, uh, great for chopping herbs and doing things very quickly. So a knife is really important. And what you'll find is that if you say to somebody, I really like some good knives, like say for my birthday or something, then you'll often end up with a block of knives you probably i mean you're nodding you've probably got a block of knives in the kitchen now have you used all those knives uh yeah i think i have used all of them actually but are there some that you just rarely ever use they're just sort of an odd size yeah absolutely and and what you find is that there's normally two knives in a block that you saw your big chef's knife and maybe a small one which which or a medium size one which you call a, a paring knife and you use a serrated one that's quite useful 
Uh, and you might have a sort of a, a longish, sharp one, sort of a carving knife. So basically, you only need to buy the knives that you use. You, you don't need like a fish knife and all these different things. So pick the knives. So keep it simple. Get yourself a good chef's knife. A serrated knife is really useful. And you can actually get away with serrated knives with actually not getting such an expensive serrated knife. And that is because when you zoom right in to the, a serrated knife, it cuts because all the little sort of the downward sort of scalloped shaped parts of the blade, as you cut, you cut by pulling. And as you pull, each of those tiny little points gets a little nick into the into the food and it tears it and then once the nick is in there and because you've got all these large points you can very easily cut into things so you know if you've got if you've got a blunt knife and you're trying to cut into a smooth tomato it's very difficult because it just slides off because the blunt edge can't cut into can't find a nick to get into in that very smooth surface but with a serrated knife you've got all these points it's very easy to cut in so serrated knives are really good for cutting bread for cutting you know things that are very waxy that you find difficult otherwise so they're things to bear in mind and what about pots and pans? When should I use stainless steel? When should I use cast iron? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the cast iron is quite trendy, as is copper. Cast iron is is very good because it in, in it retains heat. It's very heavy. So the benefit of cast iron is that you once you've got it up to temperature, you can cook your steak in it. You either can then take the pan off the off the stove, and it will keep things hot for a long time. The problem with cast iron is that you need to look after it uh, because uh, basically you've got to be very careful with scouring devices. With cast iron, it takes a long time to heat up. So you need a variety of pans, should we say. So yes, it's worthwhile having a, having a cast iron skillet. If you're going to be doing things like like steaks or something that that you're going to be griddling like that, if griddling is the right word. So yes, so cast iron is good. Copper is similarly very heavy. And because it's heavy, it takes a while to warm up, but it's very good at distributing heat. And by that, I mean, is that you don't get hot spots so much. So if you get a cheap, thin aluminium frying pan and you put it on your, on your flame, you'll find that the heat doesn't spread out very much so you end with a hot spot in the middle where over the the flame or the electric element is so it becomes very difficult to heat things evenly so if you're trying to say make an omelet you'll find that the middle of the omelet gets cooked before the outsides because the heat isn't being distributed across the pan and there's lots of arguments about the different metals but essentially it's the thickness of the pan that is most important when they've looked at it scientifically and they've said you know what's better copper iron stainless steel aluminium or there's some way you can get them they're sort of they're 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 sort of sandwiches so you can have like the three ply so you'd have stainless steel on the top and stainless steel on the bottom so it's really easy to clean and it won't rust or corrode and in the middle you have something like copper so that helps distribute the heat and they perform very well in scientific tests the only problem is they're very expensive because i'm sure you can imagine getting three layers of metal together in that way and shaping into a pan is pretty hard work so but essentially the thicker the base of the pan the better it's going to distribute heat People say a lot of things about non-stick, that you should avoid non-stick because at very high temperatures, it's the, the non-stick covering it, coating is said to flake off and it's apparently toxic and it's not good for you. I would say you probably don't want a non-stick for doing super high temperature cooking like 
really hot stir frying. But apart from that, they're really useful for sort of frying an egg, you know, because, you know, it's, it's very difficult to get an egg to stick to your stick to the surface of the pan if it's non-stick. And the reason why when you cook with something and it sticks to the pan, essentially what's happening is proteins react with the metal atoms on the surface of, of the pan. And there's a chemical reaction that goes on where the protein fuses at high temperatures to that metal. So actually, when it's sticking, there are actually bonds that are forming between the between the pan and the pan metal and the food itself, which, is, which obviously you get that if you're trying to get the skin of your fish really crispy and, and you don't get it hot enough, then what happens when you don't have enough oil in there, then the fish or the food, whatever it is, is allowed to come in direct contact with the metal and so it then sticks. So the solution to that is non-stick, plenty of oil and keep it moving. But essentially what I'm saying is that non-stick isn't actually as evil as many people 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 say it is and lots of top chefs will have a non-stick frying pan in their kitchen because it's just useful okay so let's talk about cooking meat so often when you cook meat you want a nice brown layer on it it looks really nice but does it do anything more than just looking nice yeah one of the things ugh, my mum has never been a very good cook and she would her idea of say like a stew or something would be to get a big broth of of something very simple very not very well flavored and then she'd throw in some various vegetables she'd throw in some meat maybe and at the end you end up with this bowl of something and the meat is pretty bland and tasteless and what the problem is is that for meat most of its flavor comes from the outer surface that brown lovely meaty sort of that that thing that that we all love the smells of the barbecue that that meaty outer coating and what what's going on there what gives that the meat its flavor is a reaction called the maillard reaction it's spelled mallard reaction but you pronounce it maillard reaction and essentially what's happening is that when the surface of food gets above about 130 degrees c then the bits of the protein proteins are made up of substances called amino acids and when those amino acids react together with the traces of sugar that are, that are in all foods all all Basically, all foods have little traces of sugar in, and they react with the amino acids. And these bizarre things happen. There's a sort of this this kind of clashing together of these two things, and there's a there's sort of this cacophony of different reactions that take place. And it's sort of these these almost infinite sort of different combinations of one molecule clash with another molecule that gets bigger, and then that clashes with another one. It's all happening on the surface of the food as it's cooking at this temperature. This is called the Maillard reaction. It's also called the browning reaction because many of these substances that are formed are brown. But these substances that are formed, they're very aromatic. They have a smell to them, and that's what gives it their flavour. They're called flavour compounds. And the, the vastness of all the different reactions and the possibilities that can take place are what gives individual foods their unique flavour based on the types of proteins on the surface of that food and the, the types of sugars and the amounts of sugars that are there, those trace amounts of sugars that are there. And that's what makes meat taste like meat, steak tastes like steak. It's the same reaction, fundamentally the same reaction that happens on bread when you put it in a toaster and it comes out and you transform bread into toast. <laughs> you know, like as a kid, you go, well, the bread goes in, but where does the toast come from? Because <laughs> it's so different. And that's because this wonderful reaction. So if you don't brown your meat, so my mum, for example, she wouldn't brown the meat, she'd just chop it up and throw it in. 
the meat is never going to go above 100 degrees C, the boiling point of water. So it's never going to brown. The only way to get that meaty flavor on any kind of meat or fish based food is to cook it at that high temperature. So you've got to, say, fry it off beforehand. And you'll see, if I've done it, if you get, if you get a thermometer and you put it on the pan, you'll see that as it goes above 100 degrees C, which you can, you can only do if you've got oil rather than water in the pan, because oils go to extremely high temperatures before they break down and they catch a light. So you need oil in the pan. Is As it goes above 130, 140 degrees C, all of a sudden this magic, you get the smells, these kind of roasted, nutty kind of smells that, that fill the kitchen. Same thing happens with baked bread. It's that same reaction going on that, that gives food its wonderful cooking flavours and smells. Browning is essential for all meat cooking. So let, let's talk about eggs for a minute. I like poached eggs, but I'm rubbish at making them. So scientifically, uh, what's the best way to poach an egg? That's that's a great question. And I actually went on to this morning, uh, the ITV programme once, when there was a couple of years ago, around the time this book was originally brought out two, three years ago, there was a big hoo-ha, should we say. It was a slow news day on how to cook the perfect poached egg. I think it was Nigella Lawson or somebody, or Delia Smith had decided that they had the best way to poach an egg. So they wheeled me out to say, scientifically, what's the best way to poach an egg? So essentially, the first thing you've got to bear in mind when you're poaching an egg is that there's a yolk and there's a white which everybody goes, yeah, there's a yolk and a white, but actually there's two whites. There's a thick white and a thin white. When you crack open your, your egg, put it in a bowl, you'll see you've got the yolk, then you've got this thick sort of very gloopy egg white around it, then there's a thin sort of watery egg white around it. And so the mistake that people make is that when you dunk it all in, is that that thin white around the outside cooks very quickly and it ends up as this very stringy kind of mess. And so you're trying to keep it together and you, your, your pan's just filling up with this this thin white that's getting cooked and, and just making it look horrible. So one way to get around that is to get a, a sieve or a tea strainer uh, and you can, when you crack the egg, crack it into that, and then a little bit of liquid will come off. That will be the that will be the thin egg whites. If you really want to, you can keep it to one side and use it as part of making meringue, for example. But essentially, that's not going to make a good poached egg. You then want the pot on a on a on a light simmer. You don't want it on a on a high rolling boil. On a light simmer, you want to put in a little bit of salt, a little bit of teaspoon of salt, and a glug of vinegar and what you will find is that when you put it in there, the a reaction goes on with the the albumin, the egg white, and the acetic acid, and it produces carbon dioxide. And with, with the salt added into the water as well, those little bubbles of carbon dioxide change the buoyancy of the egg. And, and these little bubbles of gas will cause the, the poached egg to rise, to rise to the surface as it cooks. And so what you'll find is that you can put the egg in there and as it rises to the surface, they'll tell you pretty much that it's done. So, so that's a nice, neat little way of uh, trying to get it about the timing about right. So you don't need to swirl it. As you know, some people say it doesn't really make much difference. You use a slotted spoon as well. So that helps you sort of get it out. I mean, the worst thing is when you're trying to fish it out with a, with a regular spoon, you're trying to squash it up against the side <laughs> and it's all going horribly wrong. Uh, so yeah, there's just some tips. You know, everybody's got their own personal idea about it, but yeah, a bit of salt, a bit of vinegar, adds for a bit of the flavour, put it in there, wait for it to rise to the surface. Don't put it on too much of a rolling boil and get rid of the, the thin white at the beginning. 
Wow. Okay. I didn't know that about um, rising when it was done. That's really interesting. Um, so it's become a bit of a cliche with eggs that we keep changing our mind about whether they're good for us or bad for us. So what, yeah. what's the consensus? <sighs> to be honest, I, I think at the moment the consensus is that eggs are generally good for you. Eggs have relatively high amounts of cholesterol, which is the thing that everybody gets worried about with their heart. And that was initially the reason why eggs were said you don't want uh, to eat eggs because it's bad for your heart. The thing is, is that that cholesterol doesn't actually, unless you have lots and lots of eggs, doesn't actually translate to high levels of harmful cholesterol in the blood. So essentially, so eggs have huge amounts of nutrients in there. They've got great amounts of protein. There's a good ratio of proteins to the fats. So yeah, they're, they're little nuggets of excellent nutrition. So on balance, I would say eggs are actually really good for you. And they recommend, I think, no more than about, uh, check the numbers, but you don't want to be having more than more than one or two a day. That's probably that's probably more than enough. So, yeah, so eggs, generally, I'd say they're on the, on the favoured side of things at the moment. Right, well, that's good to know. So I've got my, my meat and I've got my eggs, so let's talk about vegetables. One vegetable I particularly like cooking with is onions. I love onions in basically every dish, but they always make me cry when I chop them. So how can I avoid that? Yeah, essentially there's a protective reaction going on inside the onion. Onions, like many plants, don't like to be damaged. And their protective mechanism is for a series of reactions to take place. Inside them, they've got They've got little, uh, they've got bits of sulfur that are locked away, uh, ready to be turned into this potent, nasty sulfur containing vapor that is the thing that makes your eyes water. And it only comes out when the onion cell has been damaged. So as soon as you start to cut it, you're chopping through these cells. This reaction goes on of, of these, these sulfur containing substances. They react together. They turn into a vapor. Then they, they come up and they reach your eyes and it's, and it, turns essentially into a sulfur-containing acid on the surface of your eyes, and that's painful, and it makes your eyes run. So as soon as you start to cut that onion and there's air between you and the onion, your eyes are going to feel it. So what you can do to get around that is you can put tight-fitting goggles on, you can cut you can cut beneath water if you want to some people some people do that it's quite tricky to do. You can get a very sharp knife. Because that means that when you cut through it, you're causing the minimum amount of damage. You're, you're, you're crushing the least number of onion cells possible. If you, if you cool it, so if you put it in the freezer before you chop it, that slows down all enzyme reactions. That slows down all the reactions so that when you cut it, that reaction that makes this nasty sulfur containing vapor won't take place as quickly. So there's some there's some nice gets good ventilation. Open the window, get a fan blowing across, and then you can then it'll blow blow it away, blow away those those nasty vapors. Great, thank you. Spoon in the mouth and all those things, a load of rubbish. <laughs> and now the the last most difficult thing probably that I want to ask you about in cooking terms is chocolate. I've had a lot of trouble with tempering chocolate. So could you just give us a, a brief outline of of what tempering chocolate is and why you need to do it. Yes, it's a it's it's a tricky one, and I was mentioning to this before before we started recording was that chocolate doesn't like to be mixed with water. So this, I guess, is a separate aside: is that chocolate doesn't have moisture in it. It's it's essentially moistureless, 
uh, you can kind of think of chocolate as being made up of lots of particles that that hate water. They like to stick together. They're, they're oil-loving, water-hating. And so what happens is that when you add some water to it, you end up with these, these fat-loving globules forming on the outside of the little droplets of water. You end up with this big, claggy mess. And there's no way you're going to get it back to chocolate after that point. So if that happens, then you should keep adding water and you essentially will end up diluting those, those claggy bits into essentially a hot chocolate. Or you can add cream instead and then you get a nice sort of lovely sort of ganache. So if you add water to chocolate, then that is a problem. You best just abandon it and, and turn it into a ganache. In terms of tempering chocolates, the thing that gives chocolate its lovely kind of texture its lovely crunch is the fat crystals in it that come from the cocoa butter the thing that makes chocolate the wonderful thing the mouth filling lovely sort of flavor that we get from chocolate is that it melts at just below body temperature so when you get chocolate and you put it in your mouth and you leave it in there it melts and so all those flavor compounds are released all the vapors are released into into your nose go to the back of your mouth into your nose and you get all those flavors all the lovely sweetness comes out so that's what makes chocolate gives its lovely texture and the, the strange thing is about cocoa butter cocoa butter is essentially just the word for cocoa fat it's the fat that you get from the cocoa bean, if you like, when it's been fermented, it's been processed, it's been it's been separated in, into its cocoa solids and its fats. So the fat has been taken out. Fat is the very expensive thing. You don't get a lot of fat, what we call cocoa butter, from your cocoa bean. But that is the thing that gives this chocolate its unique texture and mouth melting properties but to temper chocolate so you get that lovely crunch that lovely mouth melting sensation is you need to get cocoa butter into the right solid form and when you when you solidify cocoa butter it, it's made up of lots of different crystals which are sort of graded from one two three four five in roman numerals and each of these crystals has different melting and solidifying properties and what happens is that if you if you melt your chocolate which has got its its cocoa butter in and you allow it to cool to room temperature you end up with lots of jumbles of all the different crystal crystal shapes and forms as they as it all sort of comes together but if you cool it slowly and you cool it carefully to a temperature of about 28 degrees c and then stop and then warm it again a little bit, just about 31 degrees C, then you end up with a wonderful lattice of the number five crystal, which is the one that has the best texture and the best mouthfeel to it. Um, so you need to look at the temperatures, check out a book so that you've got the temperatures right, cool it, you need a thermometer, then warm it up again, and then allow it to cool down to room temperature and you will end up, it's a real fiddly job, <laughs> to be honest. And if you, if you can't, if you fail, then I wouldn't worry too much about it. There's all sort of different techniques and you can, you can use a blade on a, on a, on a marble surface to sort of control the temperature better as, you, as you're doing this cooling and heating process. So that's, that's the essence of it, but it's not something that I've had much success with. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. So of everything we've talked about today, what would you say are the three things I really need to know about food science to become an instant genius? Uh, the Mayard reaction. Everything that, that tastes good pretty much has had the Maillard reaction happen to it. So make sure that you cook things using the Maillard reaction. So even if it's nuts or seeds, 
put them in a pan, a dry pan, give it a shake, keep it up to about 130 degrees C, get it roasted, get those flavours. Meat, always brown it beforehand. Fish, always brown it beforehand. Vegetables, still have protein and those those traces of sugar when you get. That's what makes roast potatoes, roast vegetables taste wonderful. Use the browning reaction in as many things as possible. I'd say that's really important. Don't underestimate flavour and salt is the most common most popular flavor enhancer because it is so good it's it's something that our body craves in nature salt is very difficult to come by and unless you happen to live by the sea or by a salt mine you wouldn't come across salt very much and it's essential for life so we're, we're driven to salt and so little bits of salt in food just make it taste so much better we're evolved to enjoy it and it actually makes sweet things taste a little bit sweeter uh, so yeah don't be afraid of using salt obviously don't use it too liberally for health reasons but yeah so i'd say there are two things you want a third one? Oh gosh a third one so we've got browning we've got salts out of all cooking you want a third one (laughs) (laughs) i I guess cook things that you like because food is to be enjoyed and it's and there's few things in in this world that force us to sit down and be with other people and commune if you like so i think make it part of the the ritual of eating of enjoying of enjoying the cooking together and do it do it because you love it and use it as a way to understand science a bit more to go oh yeah that's really interesting about that may i reaction thing and actually that means i can cook a bit better and i can understand a little bit what's going on in my food so yeah have fun thank you for listening to this episode of instant genius that was dr stuart Faramon. if you want to know more about food science check out his book the science of cooking or to hear him tell me how to upgrade my whole life using science, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast. The June issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. Music